All right. Well, we will be continuing this morning in the book of 1 Samuel, in the series through 1 and 2 Samuel, the king we need. Jesus certainly is that king, and it's joy to, to read these stories that are written for children, but I know that I continue to get much out of them as well, and so I hope that you are blessed by that too, and um, hope that you are you know, making use, especially during the Christmas season, but at all times, of children's, book, children's books like the Jesus Storybook Bible that really helpfully help our children understand who God is. Our God's the King, and uh, we know about His kingship through His Word, which He's revealed to us, and so that's why we're going to hear from Him this morning through His Word. As I mentioned, we are in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 4. Uh, we'll be reading the passage here in a minute, but before we do that, it's our practice here, as many of you know, to recite together what we believe to be true about the Scriptures and uh, what they are and their ability to speak to us through the Spirit. And so if you, um, if you believe this, let's go ahead and recite it together. Our pursuit is by the power of the Holy Spirit to be a biblically functioning community. We will not shy away from the Word of God. We will embrace it as truth, no matter how painful it is to our souls or how countercultural it is to our souls. We will follow the King into eternity. As I mentioned, we are in chapter 4 of verse Samuel. We're going to be starting in verse uh, passage, chapter division. Um, it's a little confusing, but it says this. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. I encourage you, as I pray, to ask the Lord to speak to you, that your heart would be open to him, that he would speak to us collectively. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you, Lord, that you do reveal yourself to us through your word. If it weren't so, Lord, we would be lost, Lord, and incapable of receiving redemption and salvation. So we thank you for the gift of grace, which your word is. And Lord, we are thankful to have this time to be together and to consider your word together. Lord, we are mindful that it is indeed a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And Lord, it reveals who you are and also who we are. We thank you it's living and active, Lord, and we pray that it would be alive to each of us now, to our minds and our hearts, Lord, that it would change us and transform us as we see who you are and what you've done in Christ your Son. We pray all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we are people that love to be served. Uh, we simply do. I know that I love to be served, and I love things that serve me as well, things that are useful to me that make my life easier. What else would explain um, the, the sales of popular things in our time, even around Christmas time? We can easily get sucked into these things and the, the consumer mentality of Christmas. Um, hopefully that's not so, but God gives grace and repentance for that as well for all of us. But anyways, over, for instance, Alexa um, and other smart speakers, over 200 million of these have been sold since 2014, apparently. Quite high number when you consider the U.S. population of around 330 million. Um, others that came to mind are the Instapot and the ro uh, robotic vacuum cleaners. I know those are popular. Uh, recently, I in fact saw a commercial for a robotic lawnmower that goes by itself. What could go wrong with that, right? Watch out, Fido. Um, there's nothing wrong with these things in themselves. Uh, many of us have them, and that's fine. Uh, what they do reveal, though, is that we love things that are useful and make our lives easier. We love to be served. We love that Alexa can, can fetch some information for us that, me, that we might want. Maybe what the weather will be tomorrow or who scored the most points in the NBA in 2005 or some other uh, random, somewhat useless fact. But, um, but there's an aspect of this that actually glorifies God. After all, he created us to have rule and dominion. We were created to create. And this brings God glory. When we create or use things that bring common good to humanity, we reflect our creator, whose image we are made in. So we bring him glory, even if unconsciously. So while there's a positive aspect of creating and loving things that are useful, there is often a negative aspect as well. And that is that our affections are drawn towards things that are useful for us. We like for life to be easy and for things to work well. We tend to like when we have things that serve us well. We're happy when they do serve us well and are useful, and sometimes we're irritated when they don't. The couple of weeks leading up to Christmas was a good example of this for me. Um, just some different things around our house. Um, first, the oven temporarily stopped working, and that was... Uh, that was a major deal because Christmas cookies were soon to be made, and that's important around our house. And so uh, thankfully, it was able to be fixed. Soon after that, um, we had a plumbing issue in, in the basement, um, and that was able to be fixed, thankfully. And then not long after that, uh, the kitchen sink clogged up. 
um, too many potato skins trying to go through the garbage disposal. And, uh, and they don't go through that very well. They just kind of skip through, I guess. And so below that, there was a clog and able to get that unclogged. Thankfully, all these issues were able to be resolved. But I was reminded of how useful these simple things that we take for granted are to us. Plumbing, a working oven, and how much you can be irritated when they're not working as they should be. Um, but this is just an example that we have so many things that are useful to us and that serve us, and that sometimes we can actually relate to people in the same way and get irritated with them when they don't uh, serve us or be useful to us as we thought. And even more seriously is that we can have that attitude towards the Lord, towards our God. We can relate to Him in that sort of way as well, desiring that He be useful and serve us. We can begin to even think that He exists to serve us and to be useful to us. And the love what is useful and serves us is not just a contemporary problem, but it's a timeless human problem. And our sinful human tendency is indeed to, to craft and to worship a useful God. And when we do this, we're no longer worshiping the God of the Bible. And that's what we'll see in our passage today is that the Israelites began relating to our all-powerful, holy creator God in a way to serve them and to be useful to them. And when the Israelites did this, or when we do it today, we're no longer worshiping the true God of the Bible, but we're worshiping a God with a little g, an idol of our own making. Just as we read earlier in Acts 17, 29, that we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver, an, Im an image formed by the art and imagination of man. When we are coming to God as primarily as someone that is useful to us, we are serving him um, by the dictates of our own imagination rather than as he really is. And that leads us to the first of two points that we see from this passage. The first point being that the Lord is primarily worthy of worship, not primarily useful for us. He is primarily worthy of worship, not primarily useful for us. Our passage begins with the Israelites battling and being defeated by the Philistines. In response, the elders of Israel, they ask the right question. They ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They recognize that the outcome of the battle was certainly in the Lord's hands. But although they ask the right question, they come to the wrong answer. However, if they would have been maybe perhaps more thoughtful, they would have considered Leviticus 20.16, for instance, where it says that if Israel does not listen to the Lord and disobeys and breaks his covenant, he says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Deuteronomy 28 is very similar. Their defeat should have really been an opportunity for them to look inward and understand their sin sinfulness and their waywardness and turn back to the Lord. And lest we look down at our noses to the Israelites, let us be honest and admit how much we have the same tendency. Whenever we experience bitter outcomes, could it actually be that the problem lies within us? Might we actually need to examine our hearts and minds and actions to see if they have been pleasing to the Lord? How often we think, what's wrong with you people, right? When we look out at the world or people around us and we're frustrated, but how seldom we think, 
what's wrong with me? And we need to ask that and to think that more. Whenever we experience relational difficulties or financial hardships or even distance or bitterness from the Lord himself, how often do we look inward first? We ought to. But Israel, instead of looking inward as a nation and seeing the two wicked priests that are still in leadership, they seem to be looking outward. In doing so, they seem to hastily come to the conclusion, okay, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. We considered the Ark somewhat last week, but essentially it was a sacred gold-covered portable box around probably four feet wide and maybe two feet high. And when Israel was on the move, it moved with them. When they were camped, it was in the section of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. Among other things, the Ark of the Covenant communicated three R's about the Lord, his rule, his revelation, and his reconciliation. In verse 4, a full name for the Ark is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. His enthronement on high communicates his rule, and the Ark is a reminder of his rule. That the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark, and that the Lord promised to speak to Moses there where the Ark was, communicated his revelation aspect, that he is a God who reveals or speaks and that the lid of the ark um, was often called the mercy seat, and it was yearly sprinkled with blood of sacrifice that communicates reconciliation. That the God of uh, the Israelites is a God who forgives, who reconciles. So although Israel's solution wasn't the right one, we do need to give them some credit for why they may have thought they should bring the ark. The ark was also a sign of God's leading his people including at times leading them into battle. We see this in Numbers 10.35 with Israel in the wilderness. In that verse we read, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. Similarly, the ark had been instrumental in the Jordan River, stopping for the Israelites to cross over, as well as the destruction of Jericho. So they say, and we can understand from these things, they say, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh so that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. The ESV, there's, um, in, uh, I think the ESV that I have at least, there's a little footnote about this, but it translates it um, as the pronoun here so that it may come among us. But the pronoun could also be translated him, let he or let him come among us, the Lord himself. Either translation is, of that pronoun is okay. But regardless of how it's translated, the assumption of the Israelites seems to be the same, that if they bring the ark to the battle with the Philistines, then the Lord would certainly provide victory for them because his presence is attached to the ark. And if they lose with the ark, it would be clear that the Lord himself has lost. And he certainly wouldn't allow that to happen, right? So they're basically attempting to twist God's arm. Of course, we know that that's not possible. God doesn't allow his arms to be twisted. Uh, Del Ralph Davis comments, he says, when we, whether Israelites or Christians, operate this way, our concern is not to seek God, but to control him, to submit 
to, not to submit to God, but to use Him. So we prefer religious magic to spiritual holiness. We are interested in success, not repentance. I think that's really insightful. I'll read that again. He says we're interested in success, not repentance. Because of the corruption of sin, this is our tendency, even at times if we are believers. After we've even come to know Christ, we can have a tendency that to, rather than serving and worshiping God, our tendency can be to make God into someone who serves or is useful to us. When we do this, we have created a God of our own imagination and are no longer worshiping the creator God of the Bible. Yes, as a good father, he delights for us to ask of him good things. And he delights to give us good things. That's why he's given us himself, Emmanuel. But he also knows our hearts, and we can't fool him. If we are living disobediently without repentance and as if he is not the king on the throne, while at the same time we pray for and expect his favor, we're acting as fools. We must come to him first and foremost in humble, repentant, and reverent worship. We see this in the visit of the wise men from Matthew 2 that we just read of in the storybook Bible. These men of great learning and influence, they, they traveled, as we heard, uh, by camel, not by car. They traveled across endless deserts, up steep mountains, through deep valleys and raging rivers and over grassy plains, which likely was for, very, for many months as it was communicated there. We often don't think about it. So we had this really difficult journey. Why? These are, these are men who, from the world's perspective, probably didn't need anything, Right? But it had been revealed to them who this child was. And though they had great standing and wealth, they came to worship. They tell King Herod that when they arrive in Jerusalem in verse 2, that they were there to worship him. And verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. If we truly understand him too, we'll come to him first and foremost to worship him, to give him not just costly things, although we should, as they did, but we'll also give him that which is most costly, our very lives. So are you coming to him first and foremost for worship today or because he is useful? What's your motivation in your prayer times, in your devotions, even in your Bible reading? Is it delight in meeting with God and hearing from Him? Or is it something else? Davis again says, Whenever the church stops confessing, Thou art worthy, and begins chanting, Thou art useful, well then you know the ark of God has been captured again. Basically, he means that the church is in much trouble when its main focus is on God's usefulness to us versus His worthiness to be worshipped. Essentially, this is what's in view here is man-centered theology versus God-centered theology. Does God exist to make much of us, or do we exist to make much of him? Obviously, the latter is what the Bible teaches. So I ask, do you come to God primarily because he is useful to you? Because he can give you something you long for, like physical or relational healing, or meet your material needs? All these are good things, and we should come to God for them. 
But we must first and foremost come to him because he is, our, he is worthy of our worship and delight. So is this your heart today? Sometimes those things for which we most want from God, that we yearn for the most, the areas where we want him to work the most, they can pose the biggest temptation toward idolatry for us. If we just had this, Lord, if you would just repair this relationship, if you would just heal this physical ailment. But nonetheless, we must come to him first and foremost for worship knowing that he can do those things, that he longs to give us the things that we need, the things that are good for us, but knowing that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways higher than our ways. So indeed, we must first come to him for worship, not because he's useful. Next, we see that, second point, it is God's tendency to allow what seem to be temporary setbacks for perfect and lasting victory. It's God's tendency to allow what seem to be temporary setbacks for perfect and lasting victory. And we see this in this passage with regard to his honor and with regard to relationship with his people. Although the Israelites have the ark and they, they hold this holy pep rally with mighty shouts and the Philistines are shaken in their boots, Israel is defeated soundly. Verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. There was a great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. The creator God, with limitless power, is defeated. Or is he? Yes, Israel lost the battle, but if we look closer, we'll see that this temporary, seeming setback is working towards Yahweh's perfect and lasting victory. And we'll see, as we consider what is happening in this passage, that this perfect and lasting victory is both personal, and corporate. While Israel's plan for the Ark of the Covenant was to use it and to use Yahweh to achieve victory, the Lord uses the Ark and Israel's sinfulness to, uh, sinful motives to achieve his purposes. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were worthless men who, though they served as priests, they did not know the Lord, we're told. They robbed from the Lord, treated his, treated his offerings with contempt, and even slept with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So it was the Lord's will then to judge them and put them to death. In chapter 2, 34, we read, And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. The Lord's word and purpose came to pass, and by doing so, honor was actually brought to the Lord. It would have appeared at the time, if there were news reports, newspapers, or whatever at the time, that Yahweh suffered a great dishonor through his defeat to the Philistines. But actually, through the defeat, he was working to protect and restore his honor. One commentator said, Yahweh may be despised in the land of the Philistines for a while, but he will no more be despised in Shiloh. The Philistines may temporarily think their god, Dagon, is greater than Yahweh, but he's willing to allow that to happen to protect his honor among his own people. Shiloh was the place of worship at the time, and the Lord was despised among his own people by the immoral, unfaithful, and wicked leadership 
of Hophni and Phinehas. But no more. What seems like a temporary setback is restoring the Lord's honor and therefore bringing victory. Another aspect of the temporary setback for lasting victory has to do with Yahweh's relationship with his people. At this time, Israel's relationship with the Lord was lacking because their understanding of God was deficient, as we've seen. Since our God is inherently relational, desiring that we would truly know him, the Lord must correct Israel's view of him for their relationship to be restored. Consider this illustration. Think about how, uh, how easy it is with the whole online world for someone to have a false identity and a relationship built on that false identity. Sometimes, sadly, such things are even used for evil purposes. But if you don't truly know a person's true identity, you can't truly have a relationship with that person. Israel's understanding of who Yahweh is needs to be corrected for their relationship with him to be healthy. The Lord would rather suffer shame, as it seems he does here, than allow his people to carry on a false relationship with him. He's willing to suffer this temporary setback that true relationship, true and lasting victory will take place. It's almost similar to, as well, creating a, a healthy boundary in a relationship. Whenever that's done, it's difficult at the time, right? It's, it's hard to speak difficult words to somebody that you care for. Uh, it's difficult for the, rela- the relationship, and it's difficult for the parties involved. By the Lord causing Israel to suffer defeat, it's as, it's as if he is saying, no, you can't use me and be in healthy relationship with me. You can't do that. Also, regarding Israel's relationship with the Lord, the passage shows us that the Lord will allow you to be disappointed with him if it will awaken you to the sort of God he really is. It's somewhat ironic that the Philistines, at least in some ways, seem to have a better understanding of Israel or of Israel's God than Israel did. Although they misunderstood Israel to follow many gods rather than one God, they know what happened in Egypt and they fear. Israel at this point seems to have little healthy fear of the Lord. Again, they want to use the Lord rather than come to him for worship. He is willing to disappoint the Israelites to help them see who he really is, and he's willing to do the same for us today. And sometimes we need that disappointment to see him more accurately. What we and the Israelites really need is not to be shielded from disappointments. What we do really need is to be awakened to who God really is, even if that is through disappointment. By allowing them defeat and disappointment, that is what he is doing. He is awakening Israel to who he really is. Have you felt deeply disappointed in who God is? If so, we know that since God is perfect and without fault, it is our expectations or perceptions of him that have been off. Maybe you felt that way this year. I know that this year all of us have felt disappointment in some regard, but maybe for you, you felt particularly a disappointment directly to the Lord for one reason or another. Could it be that he is really working to show you more of who he really is? Could it be that your view of God needs to be adjusted? We all need that 
to some degree. None of us have a completely perfect view of God. Or perhaps your view of God doesn't need to just be adjusted. Perhaps it needs to be dismantled and rebuilt. It will be painful, but in his grace, he will do that because he wants us to see and know him as he really is. We can't have true and healthy relationship with him if we don't truly know his real identity. There was a season of my life during my last year of college and first year out of college that was quite difficult for me personally. I felt during that season confusion and defeat and even disappointment in who I thought God was. But in the end, I found it to be a gracious invitation to have my misconceptions dismantled and to experience more of who he really is. He exposed some of the ways that I sought to use him and have him serve me rather than primarily come to him for worship and delight to be satisfied in who he is. He's willing to bring what may feel like setbacks in our relationship with him, disappointment even, to help us see who he really is. We are also reminded that just as in redemptive history, as God prepares for the king we need, it seems like there are setbacks from our perspective in that divine plan of bringing redemption, bringing the king. Just as it seems there are setbacks in what he is doing, it seems that at times there can be setbacks in his complete reign in our lives. In our lives, the path of sanctification, as I think many of us know, the path to sanctification and glory is anything but smooth. Um, Israel, at times, certainly took one step forward and two steps back. And at times, it will seem that way to us. But God is working. He will bring all that he purposes in redemption to pass, both globally and personally in our lives. We see this idea of what seems like temporary setbacks for perfect and lasting victory most fully in the incarnation and the cross. Considering the incarnation, even some of the words that Fiona read of, of this mess of creation now of humanity, God himself becoming human and putting himself in that, being born in the likeness of men and even tempted as a man as we are, just subjected to the craziness and lawlessness of this earth. We consider that while understanding who God is as eternal, holy, and all-powerful, this would certainly have seemed like a setback. That's why to, maybe to Satan it indeed was hard to understand. And in some regards, it should be hard to understand for us. But it was for perfect and lasting victory, for complete redemption. God had to become man. And at the cross, as the spotless lamb, the all-powerful God, the almighty king, was crucified, then buried. It undoubtedly seemed at the time that this was much more than just a temporary setback. This defeat, in fact, seemed crushing and final. The Lord's honor seemed decimated. His relationship with us seemed beyond hope or repair. Before they realize who Jesus is and that he did rise again, the men walking to Emmaus, they say, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. When they say they had hoped, it seems almost as, as if they had lost hope. Jesus' death seemed much more 
than just a temporary setback. It seemed final. God's plan to redeem his people, done. But we're here today because we rejoice together that that is not the end of the story. As the hymn says, up from the grave he arose with triumph over his foes. This temporary setback paved the way for perfect and lasting victory forevermore. The Lord's honor was fully and forever proved because he has defeated sin, Satan, and death. He proved that he is not just another God of man's imagination, subject to the whims of mankind. No, he is God alone, the eternal, holy, righteous, creator God. To him belongs everlasting dominion and eternal victory. To him belongs all honor. Our relationship with him was fully and forever made secure. All disappointment and defeat was fully dealt with through his death and resurrection. Yes, in this life, we still feel disappointment and defeat. We have certainly this past year. Inevitably, we will in this coming year. But we know that these feelings are only temporary. Romans 6, 8 tells us, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And if we have been united to him by faith, death no longer has dominion over us either. And because he has raised to life eternal, he shows that he is not primarily useful to us. He is primarily worthy of our worship and our delight. So then, let us worship him today full of joy and hope because of who our God is. Let us be joyful, not because we're hopeful that 2021 might be better. Indeed, don't want to be a Debbie Downer here, but it could be worse. We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow might bring. But we do know that our king has resurrected and that he is on the throne and that he is worthy of worship and honor. So we can come to him We can trust him. We can praise him today. And if he brings tomorrow, we can praise him then and in the next year. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that although this year has been difficult, that our hope is not in a date or a calendar, Lord, but our hope rests in you, that you have already been working to bring redemption to pass. Lord, we have experienced the first fruits of that through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. And we know that all the promises yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. We confess that our sight is limited. At times, it seems that there are temporary setbacks, just as it did for Israel. And so it does for us at times, Lord, but we know that you cannot fail to bring your promises to pass. We know that you do have true and lasting victory. Through Christ, through the true and lasting victory of his death and resurrection, your honor has been upheld and restored forever. And Lord, we know that our relationship with you is secure that you can disappoint us at times, that we can 
suffer what feels like a setback in our relationship with you at times because you want more for us. You want to reveal who you truly are. You want us to know you and to trust you more deeply and more fully. And we can have confidence because Christ has risen from the dead. And we can experience life with you now and forevermore. And we rejoice in this, Lord. We rejoice. You are a God that is fundamentally worthy, not primarily useful to us. And so we pray, Lord, that today and in the days to come, even in the new year, that you would help us to rejoice in who you are, to live lives of humble, reverent, repentant worship, Lord, because of who you are, and that we would be just full of delight and satisfaction in you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.